<laughs> Welcome to the Boil Now Coffee Club Podcast, the meeting after the meeting where we talk about our experience living sober. We don't speak for Alcoholics Anonymous. This is only our experience. We have no monopoly on sobriety. If you don't like our approach, that's okay. There's lots of ways to live and lots of ways to live sober. This works for us. I'm Don. Hey, Don. Hey, everybody. I'm Sam. How you doing, Don? I'm doing kind of a geographical cure. Oh, did you find yourself yet? (laughs) No, it was wherever you go. There you are. Yeah. Yeah. And so I decided to go elsewhere and be there with me. <laughs> I'm at the <laughs> beach, which is probably going to affect the sound of the recording here because I'm recording on a hotel Wi-Fi. But now, I'm sure this is not the first Zoom meeting to occur on hotel Wi-Fi. <laughs> not at all. That wherever you are, I like to turn it around so that instead of wherever you go, there you are to wherever you are, there you go. <laughs> Well, you know, so the first time I ever heard, uh, no matter where you go, there you are, had nothing to do with recovery. Yeah. It was Buckaroo Bonsai. <laughs> do you remember that film? Well, that was a twisted uh, movie. Yeah. <laughs> One time my wife had a, I looked over at her nightstand and she had books on stacked up on the top was Be Here Now. And right underneath it was a book called Anywhere But Here. <laughs> <laughs> How fitting. What, what, are you, what are you trying to do to yourself? <laughs> well, she was actually reading up on those to practice them on you. Yeah, it was pretty. I'm just both of them dealing with, because wherever she goes, there I am. <laughs> I, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm glad it's, it's not just us, Sam. We have a guest. We do have a guest. Hi, guest. Who are you? Hey, Sam. My name's Josh. Josh, thanks so much for joining us. Hi, Josh. Yeah, I'm glad you're here. When did you get sober? Uh, in July 7th, 2006. And what was happening to you that made you decide to give up and quit drinking and go to AA? Wow. So in that moment, I was uh, calling my boss at the time from uh, prison or from jail, from the county jail for the second time in about a month and a half. The county jail. Yeah, I'd gotten a a DUI uh, without a driver's license the night before and was letting her know I wouldn't be at work since I'd been in the clink all night. No, 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 no. They're not going to let you go to work and get out on work, work permit. Yeah. I mean, sometimes work is worse than jail. I mean, it, it could have been a possibility. <laughs> yeah, it was a pretty, it was, a, I had been awake all night, so I didn't think that that was going to happen even uh, after they let me out uh, to wait my court date. So it was, it was trouble. You were in trouble. Yeah, I would, I would say so. I mean, that was sort of the, in, in that, in that particular minute, it was July 4th weekend that year that I was sort of on my, um, I guess I would say my last drinking tear, which also kind of turned into the beginning of the end of like a spiritual crisis for me. I'd I'd spent that weekend at the beach, not too far from where Don's recording today um, at a beach house and was uh, 
Yeah, I I was just drinking day like from the time I woke up until I would black out, and um, I kept going into the ocean every night uh, at two and three in the morning, uh, incapable of swimming, and just kind of tossing myself in and seeing what would happen. And uh, to the chagrin of most of the guests, you were you playing with suicide? Like um, not caring. I don't know that I knew it at the time. I definitely was fighting with the universe. Um, my, it took me a long time to recall those evenings uh, after I've been sober for a bit. And I, I really clearly remember uh, one of those nights just standing and screaming at the top of my lungs at the waves and just really aggressively, just all that desperation just pouring out. And yeah, I was pretty done. Yeah. Had you been to an AA meeting before then, or was it something new? No, no, I had never. Um, well, so <laughs> my my introduction day was actually right after that phone call with my boss. Uh, when I called my boss that time, and like I said, I'd recently had a similar conversation with her. And uh, in the moment, I just said, you know, I think I have a problem with alcohol. I'm going to go to an AA meeting. Hmm. And for years, when I told my story, um, I used to talk about that moment as if it was, you know, God inspired or it came from the universe and I'd never heard of AA ever. And it just kind of popped out of my mouth. Right. And I really believed it. And a few years of uh, clear headedness. Um, and I recalled, you know, um, at one point in my drinking, I was in uh, living in New York City at the time. And um, I had gone to a therapist to just get help, um, not with drinking, just with life. Um, I was convinced at the time, you know, I abused alcohol, but um, I could control it. I could stop when I wanted, right? Um, and I had completely forgotten that the very first meeting with this therapist, they'd said, do you think you have a problem with drinking? And I said, no, I abuse alcohol. I know I don't drink normal, but I've, you know, it's a choice. I'm choosing to live that way. And uh, this lady had asked me if I thought I needed AA meetings and went to grab, you know, the literature in her office. And I just kind of brushed it off and she left it there. Like she made the the introduction or the question. And then when I said no, she didn't pursue it or press it. So this woman's um, seed planting, as we call it, you know, had really stuck, you know, at that moment when I was just desperate and terrified, I was going to lose my job and just completely at my wits end that popped out of my mouth. Wow. That, now I've got chills on that one. And, and, and one of the things that, uh, that I know that if in a similar situation, a, a therapist had not only, presented that to me, but then pressed the issue. <laughs> um, my, you know, little anti-authoritarian, you know, uh, hackles on my back would have raised type of thing. Uh, and, and there's no way that uh, AA would have been an option. I would have just been pissed off at it from the very start. Yeah, no, she did. And she was, I, I, I'm really impressed with how she let me find that on my own. But no, I was super like she basically um, she left it there and she just said, well, maybe, you know, in, why don't we try not drinking and see what happens? Right. So she kind of put me on this challenge. And I had a lot of moments in my history where the way I would prove to myself and to other people that I wasn't didn't have a problem. I wasn't addicted to alcohol. Right. I wasn't an alcoholic was uh, by stopping for uh, days or weeks and a couple of times, even months at a time. Like I would white knuckle it in this state of just sort of violent upheaval but I wouldn't drink. And so at the end of a month, I could say, look, I haven't had drinking four weeks. I don't have a problem. If I was, if I, I had got a, this, I do that. Yeah. I could, couldn't possibly do that if I didn't have a, if I had a problem. Right. And so she put me on this challenge 
which I was like, oh, okay, I got this, you know, I'll take this out. And um, <laughs> in the course of doing this, I made up and I had, again, had no introduction to A, I didn't know anything about how it worked or any of that beyond uh, bad references in pop culture. Um, and I, but I did play poker. And so I started taking poker chips out of my poker chip set as a marker. Every day I didn't drink, I'd stick a poker chip in my pocket. And so I was doing that for a couple of days and I started to, you know, I'd carry them around with me and I'd fidget with them. And after seven, eight, nine days, I had this big pocket full of poker chips. And so I created a color system where I chipped up, you know, seven <laughs> days became a blue chip and four of those became a green chip. And I just kept doing this for months on end, working with this therapist and I would go in their office and I would just play with this stack of chips that was like my physical proof to her that I had control, right? This insane notion of, and I, these things were really, uh, um, I would play with them at the bar with my coworkers. Like it was a talisman I just latched onto in this moment of white knuckling. But then I invented the black chip. <laughs> Wait, you're the one who did that? <laughs> <laughs> I would take a black chip if I went and drank. But it was interesting because visually these two stacks couldn't catch up with each other, right? I had this head start in not drinking. And then uh -huh. I had these black chips that were creeping up. But of course I had to do a color system for coloring up the black chips too. You know, <laughs> and this guy who has total control of his drinking is running around with like a casino's worth of poker chips <laughs> in my bag to maintain that I'm in control of my drinking, right? It's complicated. So, yeah. She let the insanity show its own face, I guess, would be the, like, I didn't, you know, and that's a, that is a memory that's so visceral to me of just how desperate I was to prove I was okay, that I made up such a complexity of silliness that, you know, when I was questioning myself after I stopped drinking, those moments in my life, and there's a handful of them really come back to say, this is not normal. And when I drink, it's not normal. And when I try and stop drinking, it's certainly not normal. And I know I can't go back to that because of those experiences. But I like that because the, um, it is failing at trying to control drinking that, I mean, it is in the failure where we identify that we're alcoholics. Yeah. It, it, and a physical representation on you at all times reminding you of that. Yeah. Oh, so yeah. The, and I mean, even on the other side of those DUIs. So I, I was biking bicycle to work. It was probably, I don't know, a 10, 15 minute drive by car. And I was bike, I hadn't exercised in a decade. And I was throwing all my gear and my clothes on my back to bicycle down a major highway to get to work at my fancy job. Like it was, there's just moments of insanity that made no sense. And even in the face of stuff like that, like bicycling to work, uh, you know, miles and miles each day. It took an hour and a half to bicycle to work each way. Oh, wow. Um, sweating out just bourbon, right? You know, my, and I eventually started drinking within a week. You know, this was an obvious problem. It didn't take long for me to like throw the bike in the back of the cab and get taken home <laughs> after drinking. Like, there is a solution. It's right. the cab. <laughs> yeah. So, did that make you pay attention to your? to your failure or, or was it, or were you convinced that you were doing okay with it? Because uh, well, I'll share a story. So yeah. my wife said, uh, I, I'm not going to marry an alcohol. She wasn't my wife at the time. Mm -hmm. She said she became my wife. <laughs> she said, I'm not going to marry an alcoholic. And I think you're an alcoholic. 
-hmm. And I said, I am not. I was absolutely pissed off. The, the insult to imply such a thing. And she said, well, I don't think you can quit drinking for two weeks. I said, absolutely, I can quit for two weeks. No problem. And so I, so I began a period of days of making her miserable for, you know, this was on a Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and she, Wednesday, she's going, look at you, you're just, you're just miserable. And I'm going, I'm not miserable. She said, well, we'll try and lighten up a little bit. But I was, I was so miserable. Mm -hmm. I was so mad at her. And um, Saturday came and I, that had been a week. So I got a six pack and started drinking. And she came in and said, what are you doing? We said two weeks. And she, and I said, no, we didn't. We said one week. <laughs> and I believed that it was one week and I knew we said two weeks, but at the same time, I believed it was one week mm. and that kind of distortion field, reality distortion field is, that was, that was like years before I quit drinking two or three, not more than that. No, no, that was like six years before I quit drinking. But I always remember that it's like, you know what? I might have a problem controlling this. Mm -hmm. It's almost like we can't separate the real from the false. There's, there's some kind of line in the big book along that, or maybe the 12 yeah. and 12. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. But, but it is, but we have to start paying attention enough that we realize that there's something going on here I really am not controlling it because ultimately what happened was I realized that I'm not controlling it. It's controlling me. Even when I'm not drinking, alcoholism's controlling me. Yeah. I, I can relate to that. And I can relate directly to that wake up call of realizing I couldn't stop when I wanted to after like all the, you know, I, people started intervening on my drinking when I was a teenager. You know, I was a daily drinker in high school. You know, when I first left the college, my parents, the first time they came and brought, like I was 18, maybe 19, when they first were like, you're going to die. This is not safe, right? Oh, and wow. So, um, but I maintained this belief for a really long time, like another decade of drinking that way. And in my 20s, at one point, um, I, had, I had hit that, that realization where I'd committed to not drinking and I couldn't put together more than a couple of days, you know, and I was used to being able to not drink for a couple months. And then it was to where I couldn't put together a couple hours, right? Yeah. And the challenge for me in that was um, I had when I hit the when I really knew like I couldn't stop when I wanted to and like I knew I couldn't not drink. I didn't have uh, an uh, I wasn't inspired to get help. Right. I didn't have a moment of like, wow, this is totally out of my control. I need somebody to help me with this. I just gave up. And I just decided in that moment that I was going to die like this and that I was going to drink like this until I was dead. Like that was the card mm -hmm. that health in life right and sadly um, when you drink like we do you can do that for a really long time right and so I just sort of I think and you know we talked you asked at the beginning about like was I suicidal when I was in the ocean I just don't know I was desperate enough that I didn't care and I thought I was gonna die a drinker's death right and that's just kind of what that looked like um, I you know my sponsor used to talk about it in terms and still does of like admitting you're powerless over alcohol and getting to a place where you accept it right like it's a lot easier to admit when it you get to that point where you know you can't not pick up a drink it is really 
challenging. And I think to me, the challenge of step one is to get to that point where I accept that that's who I am and that's how I'm wired. And that because I'm powerless to fix this, I need some help, right? Um, and it took me going to a meeting after that call with my boss, you know, um, to figure that out. Like I really had a powerful experience at that first AA meeting, which was a real pain in the butt to find because I, I put it into Google in 2006. And, you know, the same website that we have pretty much now, I mean, it's been changed a little bit, but the language of AA doesn't make any sense at all on the internet. Um, when we talk about districts and areas and service committees in our public facing websites, um, it's illogical to mm -hmm. me as a terrified 30 year old alcoholic who was just in jail and I'm on the internet looking for help and I see this sort of other language, you know. Plus, all those, plus all those ads for treatment centers from all over the country. Like if yeah. you look for AA, you end up getting California, you know. Right. Now, but not so much now. Not so much. That that has been arrested a bit, um, which is really cool. But uh, so what about, uh, you're talking about that language that, that we have, Josh. Um, and, and one of the big ones, I think, that is, is throws that person who's looking for help is the open and closed meetings. Yes. yes. Mm -hmm. Describe that. Describe open and closed meetings? Yeah, what does that mean? <laughs> um, I suppose at this point is when I'm supposed to, 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 to chapter and verse the open and closed meeting statements, which is not <laughs> how I interpret our literature personally. Um, but well, you know, just put it in, in everyday language. Yeah, the intention, of a, um, the intention of, a, of a closed meeting is to make a space where I, as a new alcoholic who've never been to a meeting, feel like I'm going somewhere that's safe, somewhere where my privacy will be respected, where I can go into a room and know that the people in that room aren't gonna uh, put my name in the paper and aren't gonna um, you know, take this really terrifying private information that I'm bringing to this meeting for the first time and, um, and expose that, right? Because I'm absolutely vulnerable at that point. That day when I, crawled out of the pickup truck to go down the into the basement of this church was like mortifying and terrifying and ugly crying and all that stuff right and yeah. so we have closed meetings that create this safe space for a newcomer to come where their privacy and their privileges are held in in really sacred regard because we're all alcoholics mm -hmm. you know and the other thing it does is it creates this space by having um these meetings that are closed to you know, people who suffer from alcoholism, it's creating an environment where there's empathy and there's understanding. And what I hear shared in that meeting relates to the experiences I just had. Um, my experience at my first AA meeting was, you know, blubbering down that staircase and sitting in the chair closest to the door at the like three seconds to eight when the meeting started was at that home group at the time, they would change their topic to be a first step meeting. And every single person in that meeting shared their personal experience with how they realized they couldn't not drink, right? And hearing that circle share that experience just um, aside from just overwhelmed me with an empathetic terror of how hard life had been, it gave me a belief that all these people who looked way different than me also had experienced what I had experienced, right? And I 
instantly had a sense of security. I had a sense of relief that there might be a, a, a possible solution. And I had a sense of hope for the first time in decades. Like there was a guy in that meeting who leaned on his haunches and pointed at me from across the room. You know, we don't cross talk, but this sure saved my butt. And he said, you know, you never have to take a drink again. And I trusted that that guy knew what he was talking about. I don't know why it was the power of that room and its united voice saying the same thing over and over again, or I was just that desperate, but I believed him. And I turned to the guy next to me and said, will you show me how the hell this works? Oh, wow. You know? Wow. Josh, that's why we have telling of this. <laughs> that's good to hear because um, sometimes I feel like that thing of when a newcomer comes into a meeting. And so we all share the first step and talk about how we got sober and kind of direct it towards the new person that it puts them on the spot and it's uncomfortable. Mm. Uh, sometimes I worry that it can be uncomfortable to them, but hearing you in that instance, it's, that's mm -hmm. not what you got out of it. You, you felt supported. Yeah. Josh, that uh, your telling of that just really hit me hard. Um, that, that got my, my eyes teary eyed. And, and I mean, I, I have been in meetings that that is the home group's conscience. Uh, uh, their, their plan is that when someone new comes in, they make it a first step meeting and, and do much like you just described. Uh, and I've been in other meetings where, you know, they don't, mm -hmm. uh, but, um, but I love, I love the, the, the feeling that you just imparted in telling that. Yeah, no, it was powerful. It was a powerful night, you know, and, and, uh, and I got my first sponsor, that guy next to me took me like I, I blubbered that I was driving a truck with no license. And he's like, well, let's not do that anymore. And maybe leave that at home. I'll come pick you up. <laughs> and he took me to my first meeting, like every night for weeks. That's and then he cool. taught me how to find rides and how to get buses and do that stuff too. But we started with him. So what's an open meeting? So Open meetings were created to give the general public and anybody with an interest in alcoholism an opportunity to see and hear directly from us what it's like to be an alcoholic, right? Um, many open meetings or speaker meetings where that experience is shared, a whole nother slew of open meetings or uh, regular old AA meetings where they leave them open so people can see how that process works. You know, that is a, a place for um, the non-alcoholic or the professional to, to get a sense of what AA is and what AA is about. It's a, it's a place for the um, potential alcoholic who's terrified and maybe doesn't want to go sit in a meeting and say, my name's Josh and I'm an alcoholic, right? Um, that person has a space they can go and just watch and say, do I, huh, do I get, am I going to, you know, do I have this? Is this my problem, right? We just had last week about 15 nursing students come into the meeting oh wow In, into a zoom meeting. yeah no it's great so there we had, we had a lady at my home group one time where she had a notebook and it made everybody really nervous and so as long as she was coming she was a nurse doing the same thing and so we would say at the beginning of the meeting you know that's so and so and she's a nurse and she we're glad she's here and you know don't mind her notebook she's not writing down your name and you know taking down your personal <laughs> stories she's taking notes to try and understand you know this this disease we have the difference between an open meeting and a closed meeting, though, to to be clear, though, is for a closed meeting is for anyone who, if anyone thinks they might have a problem with alcohol, 
then they're welcome at a closed meeting. If you think you have a problem with alcohol, you're welcome at a closed meeting. Come find out. You and can, you're also welcome at an open meeting. And you're welcome at an open meeting. <laughs> but and the open meeting is also for people who are not alcoholic. Right. Yeah. And you can be drinking and come to a AA. Although we would prefer you didn't have it in the cup. You can finish the drink before you come in. Yeah, no drinking in the meeting. But. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, whatever it takes. If you got to have it, I mean, yeah. bring it. But, you know. I know so, for a fact that rule gets broken. We had a, <laughs> when my very first home group in my first couple of months, they were finding tall boys in the bathroom garbage can. And it was one of those <laughs> where we're like, you know, and it's AA. You don't look, you know, that doesn't trigger an investigation. It just makes people aware, like, oh, someone's having a hard time. You kind of keep an extra eye open to see if you can help them, right? I was, yeah. I was at a morning meeting and it was 10 o'clock. And, um, and the, uh, at the end of the meeting, this guy came up to me. He was, he was, he was fitting the, he was fitting the stereotype that I had of what an alcoholic looked like. He had a long overcoat and was unwashed. <laughs> and, uh, it was after the meeting, he said, this meeting got to me. And he said, take these. I don't want them. And he gave me two bottles of liquor out of the pocket. And I was like, oh, God, I was like six months sober. Yeah. This stuff was like, you know, terrifying to be actually holding. It was still charged for me. Yeah. I took them right to the garbage can and threw them away. But uh, mm -hmm. I, uh, I bought a, a box of wine off of a, uh, a new member. <laughs> Yeah, uh, we were chatting after the uh, the meeting, and uh, and he told me he had this box of wine in his car that he was out, he was going to take it to the grocery store at some point and return it. And, <laughs> and I was like, "Let me buy that box of wine off of you." And <laughs> and and that's what we did, and went home and threw it away. But uh, yeah, you know, we help out. We I, I I love this, and and Josh, you may be the first person I heard say this, but but I've I've heard it said. Um, in AA, we don't shoot our wounded. Um, huh. You know, we maybe, so I guess your reaction, it wasn't you. Uh, <laughs> but, but we don't. I mean, we're not here to, to wag our fingers at people and, and, and chastise. You know, we're here to, to help. Yeah, no, I agree with that 100%. And I definitely appreciate you qualifying that sentiment so that it didn't come across as if I was trying to imply, I got to know I'm an alcoholic to go to a closed meeting. I don't, I don't think there's a better place to try and figure out whether or not I'm an alcoholic than at an AA meeting. And, um, you know, and depending on the home group I walk into, um, that may or may not be the meeting that helps me find that answer. You know, when I first came in, I went to every meeting in my town. Because, uh, and luckily at that point, like back in 06 in Durham, North Carolina, there was still like a meeting a night. At eight o'clock, there was a meeting and they were all over, they were spread out across different home groups covered eight o'clock every night and you know so you got to see all the different experiences of different meetings because there weren't as many and in doing so I was able to sort of hear a lot of diverse experience and find a home group that was comfortable for me um, you know but that's the place where I figure that out right I don't go into an AA meeting knowing I'm an alcoholic I go into an AA meeting noting that I drink like a crazy person uh, and my life has just gone nuts and I don't know what to do or at least I did um, you know, I left an A meeting thinking I might be an alcoholic. And on the other end of some step work with a sponsor, I knew I was an alcoholic. Um, 
and then you know the rest of my life and experiences were points where I had to remind myself of that a while until I finally accepted I was an alcoholic and now it's something that gives me great joy because wow. I have a life uh, worth living today because of my ability to accept that that's just a truth about me is that I have alcoholism it's not a it's not a scarlet letter it's not a um, anything I'm ashamed of it is the thing that like by dealing with this disease I have, I was able to get through it and work as a, a, a sober alcoholic to have a life that I'm really grateful for. And, you know, most people I think would be happy to have. I like that That's you fantastic. said you came in and, and you turned to the guy next time after everybody had shared and everyone said, well, tell me what to do. Yeah. That's the question. So, and what to do is to get a sponsor and start working the steps. And so it was an experience working the steps where it seemed like this is crazy and makes no sense, but I'm going to do it anyway, because I don't know what to do and I've got to do something different. Yeah. Uh, that just made me laugh out loud. And I remember, but before I tell this, the experience with that guy that I wanted to say too about that guy I asked, right? The guy in the chair to my right, he hadn't shared the entire meeting. So when you talk about like, how do you pick a sponsor? I just literally grabbed a total stranger who hadn't said a word, right? <laughs> and his answer to that question when I said, and I said, show me how the F this works, but he, said, he, <laughs> he didn't tease me about swearing. He didn't tease me about ugly crying. He just said, uh, what are you doing tomorrow night? Let's go to a meeting, right? Yeah. And it was on the drive to the meeting when he's giving me a lift that he said, you know, Here's what's going to happen. We're going to, after the meeting, we'll come back and we're going to read this book in your house. And he took me to and from meetings and he went out of his, he had a family at home. He went out of his way to sit in my house and just read this book with me. Right. Wow. And um, every night after the meeting, I didn't share in the meetings. I didn't talk to folks at the meeting. I stood outside chain smoking from the corner and scowled at everybody. <laughs> for my first weeks on end and months on end, I was terrified and in defense mode. Right. And I would just sit there during this meeting and try and listen. And on the car rides to my house, he would say, well, what did you hear? And I would go, gah, 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 that stupid lady and this guy's an idiot. And I don't believe that crap. And this, I just let all this filth, right? Just spill out in the car. But by the time we got to the house, we had none of that. Like we read the book, period. And he'd share a little bit of his experience with what we were reading. And I would start to go, well, that doesn't make any damn sense. And friggity frack and blah, blah, blah. And he would say, cool, but we're on page three. And <laughs> so he would just bring me back and we'd read through the book. Um, that is awesome. Yeah. He gave me all the space I needed to be wackadoodle. And, and it was a, a release I needed, right? Mm -hmm. Because I was so wound up and so just tight with terror and, and panic and guilt and shame, right? Um, but when we got to the point... <laughs> where we were going to do our third step. And I've done the third steps different ways now with different friends who responded different ways. I've, I've participated in group third steps, which made me even more uncomfortable than my third step personally. But and what's, what's case, the third step? Made a decision to turn our will and life over to God as we understand God. So the point in the book where it suggests we did that with a prayer kind of like or sort of like this, uh, and we you know, my sponsor was sponsored that this is a prayer and we're going to do it on our knees. And that's where I was like, hold on a second. <laughs> and he's like, yeah, it's kind of the thing. And I know it may be awkward and it may not, I know you may not, may not be your normal, but we're going to get down on our knees and we got to hold hands and we're going to say this prayer. 
And I was like, well, wait a minute. And so we sat and talked about even just the idea of doing that for a, quite a bit. Um, Cause we'd gotten, we, we'd read, there's another part in the big book where it talks about, are you now, or are you even willing to believe that there's a power greater than yourself, right? And he asked me that question because I couldn't get past that point in the book without an affirmative answer to that question, right? So I said, no. And he's like, okay. And he put, he just kept adding qualifiers to the end of that sentence, right? Do you believe now or are you willing to believe that there may be a power greater than No. Uh, well, how about, do you, do you believe now or are you willing to believe that you might in the future sometime believe that there's a power greater than yourself? And I was like, I don't know, man. And he just kept adding qualifiers till the sentence was long as hell. <laughs> and it got to a place where I could say, well, shit, okay, fine. We can do that. <laughs> I can do that. Maybe sort of. It gave me like enough runway to back out, basically, yeah. that I could get on the road. And, um, yeah, and I kind of was in the- a, You don't want to be a hypocrite. <laughs> right. And the hoop we have to jump through is broad and roomy, right? right? <laughs> I just needed it. He gave me all these, the asterisk line was huge. So, um, and that was kind of my sense when we we're about to get down and, and uh, get on our knees and hold hands. And I was just like, because when I first got into AI, I had this genuine fear and belief that um, at some point, like page, I don't know, 97, somewhere at some point in this book, you were going to close the book and look me in the eyes and tell me that, uh, you know, this was what I had to believe, mm -hmm. that this was my new savior, and this is the religion of the program, and this is what you're going to do now. Like, I was really convinced there was a trap door. So getting on my knees and holding this guy's hand was like walking towards that. Yeah. And it really freaked me out. Um, but I really trusted him. And when he looked at me and he said, no. And he's like, this is not something I did regularly before I got here. And he just shared his own experience. And he's like, but it is something that we got to do to move on. And I was like, all right, well, I really want to see what's like on the next page. So I just said, fine. And we did it. And it didn't matter any more than uh, any other thing that I made a big hoopty deal about. I didn't have a particularly um, spiritual moment in that. I was still really uncomfortable. Um, it felt awkward. But... It also felt like when I got down on my knees and I held his hand and we read this prayer off of a book balanced on a chair, um, it was another one of these like, kind of like if you're in prison and you're notching uh, the days that you're there, this was like a notch of, of surrender, a notch of humility, a notch of like, okay, I know what it's like on the other door. Like if I go back out this door to where I was, I know what that looks like. I'm just gonna trust this guy He's done nothing but, you know, he hasn't led me astray yet. And I just went with what he said. And each of those little moments, whenever I was willing to put aside my fears and just try somebody else's suggestion, um, in my experience in AA and in general, actually, and just in life today, I often get to the other side of those experiences. Um, and there's some weird, uh, powerful, like, bonus to doing that. There's just this, like... And not only did we get through the thing we needed to do, there was like this whole extra like candy center to the lollipop that we weren't <laughs> expecting that was just like, oh, wow. Not only was that not a big deal, it's freaking awesome. Like it just sort of works out that way. So it was just a matter of faith in that guy, to be honest. Like I trusted that dude wasn't messing with me. I didn't know that the program wasn't messing with me, but I knew that guy wasn't. 
you know, and it took over time. I realized the program wasn't either. That was all in my head. Don't you think those things are that happen in AA are like, uh, like you said, uh, so it's a marker of mm -hmm. where, of that you have gone past this point and you are now past the person that you were that drank. So now there's a little bit of like relief. I, I, I'm not that person, but you know, here's another day that I'm sober and I did this thing. So, you know, it's a marker on the highway of the travel of the broad highway that we traveled <laughs> to the road of happy destiny. Yeah. But, the, uh, yeah. but I was, you know, I was thinking it was you do, the way you described it. It's kind of like where you got more than what you put into it, what you expected. And it's kind of like one plus one equals three. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree with that. And I also agree with that idea that like the same way that these things happened that when I reflect back on them, I saw how my drinking was getting out of control. Those same moments happened after I got sober where I saw life and sanity return and I saw myself change, right? Ultimately through taking small little actions and seeing change in my life and changing me as a person was what inspired me to keep walking, right? Yeah. Um, I will never forever, forever forget uh, the night I got my 90 day chip. And it's not because of the 90 day chip per se, although at that night I thought it was. I was, when I got my 90 day chip, I was so excited. I was so excited to hold up this plastic poker chip that was red, it didn't even, I don't even think the poker chips at my home group at the time had the little AA on them. They were just literally right out of the CVS, they were poker chips. Um, and I was so excited that I left for the meeting almost an hour, hour and a half early. And I was just, I got put on a nice shirt. I was excited to stand up and say I was, you know, 90 days sober. And at the time I didn't have a driver's license and most of my early sobriety for years and years, I didn't have a driver's license because of some consequences. So I drove what we call in North Carolina, a liquor sickle, <laughs> which is a motor scooter uh, that goes under 35 miles an hour, which is street legal without a license in the state of North Carolina. So when you see- the old liquor sickle. Yeah. <laughs> when you see a 40 year old driving down the street in a motor scooter in the winter and he's yeah. going 22, yeah. you might have a drinking problem. <laughs> um, so I was, I got on my scooter and I, you know, down the street to go to the meeting and I was just giddy and I didn't have a lot of trouble with traffic. Like people didn't, you know, you're, you're slowing down traffic sometimes when you're in the way, but people were mostly cool about it. And this particular night, somebody came up behind me just hard and fast and I heard him coming and I looked and I saw him gun around me on a little two lane road in the dark at night. And as they got past me, what I felt hit me in the face was just like a rock. And I saw a guy in the back window crawling back in as they got past me. And I felt liquid start to come down my face and thought I was bleeding because I got hit really hard. And then I smelled Bud Light. This guy hit me in the face with a can of beer on my liquor sickle driving to pick up my 90-day chip at my home group. Oh, wow. And... You know, 92 days prior to this, had that happened, I would have chased the car down at 22 miles an hour, ran the bike into the car and let these guys beat my ass because that's how good of a fighter I was. But I didn't stop me from getting into fights. Right. Um, but I would have picked the fight. Right. I would have just gone after him full foaming mouth. And I had this moment of sheer terror that I would stand up at this meeting and no one would believe I had 90 days because I smelled like Bud Light. Mm -hmm. And 
in that moment, I just knew, wait a minute, you got an hour. Turn the bike around, go take a shower, change your shirt, and go to your meeting. It was such a moment of peaceful. Out in this road by myself in the middle of the night, didn't have any clue and just said, yeah, that's a good plan, and turned around and just did that. And I told that story at a home group where I didn't like to share, and they all laughed their ass off, and I was a part of the group, right? Like everybody thought it was funny, and this horrible thing had happened, and it wasn't all that horrible. And today I look at that as like one of my early spiritual experiences of like, I didn't react the way I used to react yeah. to this. You know, my first night in town when I moved to Durham, I, you know, I went out on a six month bender because the apartment wasn't situated the way I thought it was supposed to be. <laughs> so I drank my ass off for six months and didn't sleep for, you know, the, tried to lose this new job. And here I was just like, no, just go take a shower, change your shirt, tell the story, it'll be fine. It was, I mean, it was such, it sounds so mundane and silly, but it meant so very much to just a troubled soul to start acting like an average typical person in normal circumstances with normal solutions, right? So it was a big deal. Give, give up fighting everyone and everything. And, yeah. and there was an example of it. That's yeah. a great story. Hey, you know, I'm uh, I, I don't tend to come into these uh, these these uh, uh, recording sessions with a uh, with an agenda, but I got a little bit of one today because, uh, you know, Josh and I have worked together in a way that a lot of people don't uh, uh, do in recovery. And that is uh, that Josh took me through the super secret service manual. Um, Josh has, uh, has been my service sponsor and one of the things that you've been talking about, Josh, was the, this guy that was sitting beside you in that meeting and you asked him for help and he helped you and he met with you and he helped you get to meetings and he talked with you and he took you through the book and through the steps. And, and um, as you uh, uh, educated me, that's called direct service. And that uh, general service is all the stuff that makes direct service possible. Um, I've learned a lot more than that from you, but um, but would you would you share with us um, some of your experience with general service and and what's going on there for you? Yeah. Um, so I think kind of staying at that level of what's important. So the other thing that that same sponsor did for me was like my second week in AA, I had a home group. And it was that meeting I walked into and what he said to me is, oh, this first Wednesday of the month, um, you know, come an hour early. Just meet me at the meeting an hour early. And I was like, why? He's like, yeah, just meet me there an hour early. We get together an hour early, first Monday of the month. And what it was was a home group meeting. Um, and I didn't know that. So now, you know, half the people that were at the meeting before were now sitting in a, in a room. And, um, you know, I, again, I was terrified to talk to people. So I spent that whole meeting kind of staring at my shoes. Um, and at one point, one this old guy in the meeting said, what do you think, Josh? And I said, well, what do you mean? Because I wasn't paying attention to a thing anybody said. <laughs> and he, he, did, he didn't tease me for that either. Kind of like my, my sponsor didn't tease me for the swearing. This guy didn't call me out for like, you know, daydreaming. He recapped the entire conversation for me. He said, well, we're talking about whether or not this home group should serve cookies. And 
she thinks blank and he said this and he shared this and he shared this and she shared that and he went and recapped the entire discussion which basically boiled down to two points of view one is we should have cookies because they're welcoming and two is we shouldn't have cookies because there's a better use for the money that goes in the basket than cookies we should send that money to uh, New York City and to the area to help promote general services, right? So that was the discussion they were having. And I said, well, I don't have any clue. I, I do like cookies. And they're like, great, that's important because you're a member of this group now and what you think matters to us. They pulled you in. Pulled me in, they just, they might as well have kneecapped me. I couldn't get out after that. <laughs> like, this is the guy who, no one, I just didn't feel accepted by anybody. I didn't feel accepted by my, I didn't like me, let alone thought anybody else liked me. And he gave me a sense of an idea that I was a part of a thing now. And they'd only known me for two, three meetings at this point. This I think was the third meeting I went to at my home group, right? And I was a part of. Um, and so I was sponsored in that system of the importance of that, the importance of having a home group, the importance of having a job at my home group, um, the importance of having a job at the district, um, the importance of uh, offering and donating my time to this thing that was saving my ass. And so I got my home group and I got a responsibility at my home group. Um, I was making coffee and, and those things were useful for me because I didn't like to talk to people still, right? I used to go to other people's home groups and set up their chairs because it was a way I could interact with the group without chatting out inside because I just couldn't do that. But I would fold all, unfold all those chairs or fold them up at the end of the thing and I felt a little bit good about myself like I was a part of this thing because that chair you were sitting on, I got out of the closet, right? Like we, you and I interacted, you didn't even know it. <laughs> um, and so like being of service to those meetings mattered to me, right? And that kind of carried on into you know, the, the way my, my second sponsor always talked about that was, you know, we get back our self-esteem by doing esteemable things, right? And there is an absolute laundry list of opportunities in local areas and local cities to be of service to this fellowship, right? We need people to volunteer to have committee conversations about getting the message out so that alcoholics who need us can find us. We have committees to talk about you know, is our website working and does it, does it help, um, you know, if I'm online searching for, like I did in Google in 2006, is that working? You know, there's groups of alcoholics that come together for free and for fun uh, in volunteer committee meetings once a month or twice a month to try and figure that stuff out because as an organization, we are not um, connected and, and, and led the way your average business or nonprofit is. There's not a home office that tells everybody what to do. There's a home office in New York that actually services what it's asked to do by all of those different committees and groups and what we call delegates, right? So um, the, the message of AA gets carried further and farther by the work of local committee men and women. And you know those people ask of a central office, um, you know, here's something we need to make this work better. Yeah. It's like there, there is more to do than just talk to the uh, alcoholic. And so the 
the people that are doing service work. What did you call it? It's general service and versus direct service. Yeah. Direct service versus direct service. So there needs to be people doing the general service because somebody has got to organize the website. Someone mm -hmm. has to make sure that the information's clear. Yeah. Someone has to take the money and direct it to the best ways, make decisions for the best ways to help the still suffering alcoholic. Yeah. There's literature to be purchased. There's um, messages that need to change and adapt. There's, you know, to either mediums or to society. You know, this thing has been going on since the mid 1930s, right? Um, the, the world has changed uh, a number of times since then and continues to and will continue to. The world 100 years from now is going to be different than the world today. You know, and we've just had a major change just in the past several months. You know, I mean, just COVID, COVID oh, alone oh, yeah. has done a huge change to AA and the, uh, the reaction that, that AA um, mm -hmm. as a whole through the various, you know, groups, districts, central offices, areas, the AA World Services, General Service Office, all of these levels have had to, to do a huge adjustment in yeah. just in recent months. hundred percent. I mean, and you look at like, so you know, a few years ago, the, that World Service Office adopted the Meeting Guide app, right? So the Meeting Guide app is the most monumental creation of advancement that has been managed by our service office in a very long time. And it, it was, you know, conceived and created by a member who brought it to the table to say, hey, this is how communication works now. And it was seen as so insightful and so useful that it was adopted and licensed and is now maintained by that service office that the money I put in the basket supports. And when COVID hit, major focus into like, well, how do we get Zoom IDs into this meeting guide so that they can be back out so people can find meetings. And now you can even put within that same system, if your home group accepts contributions digitally in, in Venmo and things like that, you can put that information into your meeting listing within that system and you can do the contribution directly in the app, right? Um, mm -hmm. We've got a periodical called the Grapevine and AA Grapevine has been the magazine of uh, Alcoholics Anonymous since the 50s, right? That's had to grow and adapt into a website and into other forms of communication to try and grow with the times. And COVID hit in that magazine because of, you know, the type of service that we try and apply was able to be offered for free to a bunch of people who were suddenly trapped in their homes and weren't allowed to go out to the meetings they needed to stay alive. You know, those services require professional staffing, they require financial management, they require legal protections. You know, we need to create those kinds of things so that direct service that that guy offered me when he said, you know, why don't we just go to a meeting tomorrow has a place to happen. Even, you know, the, the, the general service of us talking about the cookies at that home group meeting is a form of general service, right? Trying to create and have this space so that when I put my information in looking for a meeting into Google, there was a meeting to be found, right? And somebody at that home group has to send that address and meeting times to somebody else that works in the city of Durham and volunteers their time to collect that information. So everybody in the city knows where to get that detail, right? And that into the state and the state into the country and now the country into the globe when you get into things like meeting guide, which is pretty spectacular because 
the service offices in New York only service uh, the United States and Canada because that's our region. There are other service offices in other countries that support AA in England or AA in all over the planet, in every other country, Sweden and Germany. And, you know, I've been to meetings in South Africa and, you know, they've got their own version. They've got their own copy of the big book with uh, South African stories in the back. It's fantastic. <laughs> and these are things that couldn't happen by an individual AA member or could not be created by necessarily a group of AA. It requires um, larger bodies, if you will. It requires more organization in some ways for things that actually make it so that we can do that direct service, that, that in South Africa, uh, that there is that literature there that someone can use to sit down with another alcoholic and help them relate to our program of recovery. General services is a, is a huge deal. And I, I just, I really appreciate your passion for it and, uh, and that you, uh, you took your time to, um, to work with me and help me get passionate about it. And I also hate to say it, but we got to move on because, you know, uh, we could talk about, I know you and I could, Don would, Don would probably fall asleep, but uh, you and I could talk about general service for another two or three hours. <laughs> I'm a GSR, I'm a general service representative for my home groups. I know you are, and I appreciate that. <laughs> you know, Josh, you know, the grapevine is something that I've supported for a long time. And I still read it in stops and starts, mm -hmm. but you, you gave me an appreciation for the grapevine by relating to me, not only what you said about how this, you know, it's snapshots of what our fellowship looked like over time, but also that it is snapshots. It's, it's a taste test of our fellowship around the country, around North America uh, or U S and Canada. Um, and in that, there are lots of us who don't get to travel, who don't get to experience AA in other locales, yet we can through the grapevine. And I know that the grapevine has been something that's really precious to you for a long time. And I want to note that your service to the grapevine now is at the trustee level, um, that you are serving Alcoholics Anonymous in a way that you are helping to, to make the grapevine uh, be even more of what it can be in relating uh, the time and flavor of AA in ways that AA World Services, you know, printing a big book or something like that can't be as reactive, can't be that nimble. Mm -hmm. um, and I just, is there anything you want to talk about around that? Yeah, it's interesting to you. <laughs> But I do serve as a, as a director on the corporate board at Grapevine currently and have for four years going on five. And, and the reason that is, is I had an opportunity to serve on a, on a public information committee at the conference level and the, the general service board level that, you know, I have such a passion for the mission of Grapevine from its inception. You know, Bill's original vision that Grapevine as a magazine and Grapevine as a publication should be the voices of the AA fellowship reflected back at them at this mirror of the fellowship as it grows through, you know, time and history, right? And it's been that. And we, you know, we continue to try and evolve that so that we can reflect that fellowship back to itself in the ways that the fellowship, you know, gathers information and, and listens. Now, not everybody reads magazines, 
um, Reader's Digest style anymore. You know, that's not mm -hmm. a normal thing typically. There, are, the magazine itself is of such massive use um, in services. You know, we get letters from prisoners all the time thanking for the, the gift subscriptions that come from the fellowship um, that we then place into prisons. You know, there's opportunities there with the magazine that I think that can carry the message into places that people sometimes can't. But most importantly to me is like, we have these two separate services and these two separate service corporations with different missions, right? Mm -hmm. AA World Services is where our literature is published and it sort of carries the group conscience of our conference process, right? Which is where all of those local groups and local districts and local areas share their experiences on the front lines of carrying direct services with their service office and say, you know, here's what's going on at the local level and here's what we need help with. And through that conference process, the voice of um, the fellowship is heard in our business, right? Um, at Grapevine, the voice of the members of the fellowship sharing their own direct experience um, is reflected back out. And, in, and it creates a great space for a, a realistic snapshot of AA today, like right now, you know? Mm -hmm. And I really appreciate the... Um, disclaimer kind of caveat you threw at the beginning of this podcast right like this doesn't this podcast doesn't speak for a none of the three of us speak for a i may be a director in the grapevine board and a trustee on the general service board i don't speak for aa as a whole that's not my job there's 21 trustees for a reason and even those 21 trustees only support the group conscience that comes out of the conference but there is this space where everybody's experience, even if it's slightly different than my own, has a seat at the table. Um, and it's all in that same love and respect for our fellowship and our program and our traditions. But, you know, like we were talking about with the parking lot, like there's a lot of different opinions in the parking lot. And there's a lot of different experiences in the parking lot. And we need a place to share all those. You know, there's great nuggets of good ideas in that person with two months, like Sam mentioned, and there's great nuggets of ideas in the person with 40 years. And they all they all deserve a little bit of space at the table and a little, and a little bit of a microphone. We created a conference process that lives into hearing from everybody so that our group conscience is filled in by everybody. Um, we created a publication company in Grapevine that's intended to share the voices of everybody and sometimes that creates a little bit of debate, right? Which is not a bad thing. There used to be sections in the grapevine back in the 80s and people have wrote letters asking for them back where you, like, you would pose a question in an issue and give like, here's a bunch of people sharing on one side of an argument and be like, come back next month. You can hear the whole <laughs> other side of the argument, right? We can't take ideas and, and there's no bad ideas. There's just uh, bad ways of talking about them. You know, I was told years ago when I got started in general service at that same literature study where we went through the service manual, the outcome of our group conscience, the decisions that are ultimately made and the actions we ultimately take are less important than how we do it. How we come to those decisions, how we treat one another when we disagree, how we come to a group conscience in our home group about cookies or at the general service conference about the internet, right? Mm -hmm. How we go about that process as sober members of Alcoholics Anonymous is infinitely more important than the ultimate outcome. Because if we all truly have a faith that there is a God of our own understanding at work, and there may be three separate gods of our own understanding on this podcast, but if we all have that belief, 
that the universe is going to take care of it, then we have to really act as if we have that belief and we have to treat one another with love and respect. And to me, um, our conference process does that. To me, Grapevine does that. And I think um, having a place where we can publish that, right? Publish those different points of view and not have it be interpreted as what AA believes is critically important to our success as a fellowship and our growth as a, as a, as a membership so that all alcoholics who need help can find it. Well, you convinced me to re-up my subscription to the grapevine. <laughs> Josh, I yeah, I love that. I love that, and, and, and it 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 again brings me to that thing that that uh, like at a, at an area assembly where there's a contentious uh, item on, on the agenda, and there is you know lines of people at the mic talking to both sides of this thing, and and it, and 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 then there's a vote, and then the minority opinion is presented, and someone may change their mind, and and all these things. That Sometimes that the last area assembly did it did it fantastic and the thing that is so cool is that you know, sometimes that can take hours um and there are breaks that happen mm -hmm. and people at the breaks go go out and get a cup of coffee or go smoke a cigarette or whatever and people on either side of that issue in those breaks and after the issue is ultimately decided and and, and settled are friendly mm -hmm. I find that just incredibly attractive. Mm -hmm. And that speaks to what you were just saying about, you know, what, whatever the decision, whatever the outcome, how we get there is so important. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's how to live. Yeah. In the world. Oh, Don, what is that swooping thing up over your head? I smell a foul. You do. Indeed, you smell quite a foul. Wait a minute. That didn't come out right. <laughs> it's time for our old timers question. Who you calling an old timer? You, you smelly old thing. Oh, I mean you. That's what happens if you don't drink and you don't die. Well, no matter how long you've been sober, spammy. It's still one day at the time. That's how we do it. <laughs> you can post a question at boiledowlaa.org. Uh, we have a question from Ellen in Florida. I'm confused about what I'm hearing as AA suggestions. Who do I listen to? Yeah, well, I'd say everything that, particularly when I was new, Everything anybody said, I ran through my sponsor. I found one person that I uh, trusted and who I wanted what they had. There was a guy I saw at meetings. I mean, Josh, you, you asked the silent guy next to you and uh, <laughs> you trusted your higher power, which you didn't even know you were doing at the time, that it was going to work out all right. I first asked a guy who I knew was in AA, and then after a couple of weeks, there was one guy that was always at every meeting I went to. He was going to a bunch of meetings. He was seven years sober and I was new. And I was like, I, you know what? I think I need to ask him because I see him at meetings all the time. And the guy I had asked only went to one or two a week. So I talked to my, that first guy and he said, yes, by all means. And 
I asked the new guy, and then I just always ran everything through him. And it was good. I went to a discussion meeting that met every day at noon, and it was an open meeting, which meant there was all kinds of people in there, not just alcoholics. There was all kinds of stuff in there that was being said that was not AA. People would start talking about their own, like, you know, Eastern philosophy journey and or uh, we had a bunch of people from other 12-step groups like uh, what was it called emotions anonymous or something like that and those couple of people tended to get really out there and it was like I don't understand what this this doesn't didn't sound he's or it's not don't listen to what he says we're going to read the book together and follow that so that was important to me. And then also, ultimately, I got two or three other people that were kind of my AA running buddies mm -hmm. that I also listened to all the time. And if I couldn't get my sponsor, I'd talk to them. There was one time I thought that, you know, it was an act of God that I make amends to an ex-girlfriend that I got into all kinds of trouble with back in the day. And suddenly she was back in town. And I was like, I think I need to make amends. <laughs> And I talked, and my sponsor was out of town. I was going, I don't know what to do. I think I, God's telling me to do this. And I talked with one of my running buddies. He said, why don't you wait till you get to that step with your sponsor, and then you make amends. If it's meant to happen, it will happen again. And I was going, well, okay, that makes sense. So, so I have to look to the people who have long ter longer term sobriety and my sponsor and filter everything that I hear in AA through that, because in AA, there's all kinds of people. Everyone's can come in from all kinds of places and some are sicker than others. <laughs> I want to find the ones who are not sick and follow their advice. Mm -hmm. Don, what do you think, Josh? Yeah, I can really relate to what you shared, Don. I have I have pretty similar experiences to that. And full disclosure, I think if I was to put a superficial reason why I picked the quiet guy next to me, he was the only dude in the room close to my age. Uh, everybody else was a little bit older and gray-haired and salty and intimidated me to no end. And I think his quietness was kind of attractive to me. <laughs> um, but you know, like you say, you get we get and. And there's a, there's a truth to that. So there's an, there is an intimacy to that relationship as you get to know one another over a period of time and you develop that trust. You know, I talked about it in, when we did the third step prayer together. I've never been attracted to people who will stand uh, at a podium or share from a chair or share in the parking lot that they know the answer or that they know what I should do and this is what it says and this is what it means. Um, the guys that I've been attracted to in their support and in their counsel have been the ones who have a conversation with me about their experience, you know, share their opinion when asked. But I mean, I've been sponsored by guys who legitimately said, well, here's my experience in AA. Are you asking me my personal opinion before they gave it to me? And those guys I respect a lot. Yeah. And I have a similar experience where yeah, I was getting all kinds of input from all kinds of people and good, bad, and indifferent, right? Like um, it was really helpful to develop that trusting relationship with one person to not give into my my bad habit of looking for the answer I wanted. Yeah. Right? By going in the parking lot and 
you know, there's somebody in the parking lot who would have told me it was a good idea to date that newcomer girl when I had two months, right? Somebody in the parking lot would have said, well, see what happens, you know, and I didn't need that advice at that time. So I had a guy that I, that I developed trust with for that. And similarly, too, to what Don described, I also over time developed a group of a network of guys who I could do a fist step with and who would be honest with me in a way that I needed so that I could work on my side of the street, right? And, you know, we had a meeting in my uh, sponsorship family tree where we went through all of the literature that AA produces. Every book, we talked about it in terms of how we sponsor other guys. And we got to hear all this experience of how people take people through the book, how they use the 12 and 12, their experience with living sober. We went through the literature and all the pamphlets. We got to the point where we were tired of going through the big book in 12 and 12 again. We read every pamphlet. We added the grapevine like every other week. We do something out of the grapevine magazine. Like we just had conversation as a group of people who got more and more intimate with one another to the point that it becomes a family that you can trust their gut and you can take criticism in, in real plain language, right? Which I need sometimes. So I think it's a process just like the rest of it, but in the beginning, it's important that I find someone I can develop a trusting relationship with. And it's important when I get any signals that I can't have a trusting relationship that I find a new sponsor really quickly. That's not something to be fickle with. I'm getting a really clear sign that, you know, someone breaks my trust or is doing anything at all that makes me feel in some way really uncomfortable. I need to find somebody else. That person is not uh, hasn't been assigned to me, nor are they like the only person who've experienced getting sober in AA. And if I get a weird vibe, I need to go with that and try and find some other help. Fantastic. When I first came into the rooms, you know, I didn't know who to trust in those rooms. Obviously, I didn't know the people. But what I got was sitting in a meeting and in some conversations when eventually I didn't run out the door as soon as the the, the, the meeting was over there were consistent things that were said by many people in the meeting, like go to meetings, call people, get phone numbers. The things that, that were repeated by multiple people kind of made sense that, okay, that's something that I can trust is real. Um, but then I, I too got that little group of people. Uh, I got this little posse and I was able to trust them. And quite frankly, it took me eight months to get a sponsor. Um, I did not get a sponsor when I first got sober. I, uh, uh, Josh, you're, you're the one who taught me this, that the traditions got me sober. The fellowship exists. And, and because of the traditions hold, help us stay together, that fellowship pulled in around me, made me a part of it, and let me get through that eight months of, of just getting to where I could actually ask someone to be my sponsor. What has happened in the meantime over all these many years is that I do have people that I can trust. And even moving to a whole new, I mean, across the country to a new city in, a, in another state, I, I had people here that I was able to do something that I've talked about many times on the show, so I won't go too far into it. But Josh, you've been one of those people as well. And that is when I'm looking for a sponsor, I don't ask someone based on my choosing. I ask someone who I respect, who do they think I should ask to be a sponsor and run with their suggestion. It's one of the things that has served me really well. So I love that, you know, when it comes to AA suggestions, who do I listen to? 
initially it's the group. It is the group as a whole, because that's where the message is repeated and repeated and repeated. And it's like, okay, that I can go with. And then as I spend time and allow this fellowship to pull me in and become a part of it, then I learn who is actually doing this Who's living this, not just talking it in the rooms, not just, not just making it look like it, but who's living this. And I'll say this thing because I love saying it. And there are some old timers out there who do not have what I want. Time is not a tool. And, you know, just because someone has 20, 30, 40 years of sobriety does not mean that they got what I want. Sometimes it's that person with two months that says that little gem that is exactly what I needed to hear at that moment. Well, That's I don't my take on it. You got anyway. <laughs> I'm gonna be that salty middle timer. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's true. It is funny. I was like that. Um, even that thought, though, that idea of um, you know the traditions were here and made space for us to find what we needed, right? And we stay sober because of the traditions until we get through the steps. Like that idea was shared with me at that at that book study by the guy who helped put that together, right? We have this beautiful oral tradition, like the, the entire fellowship of AA is an oral history, right? Um, which one of the things that the, the past grapevine executive editor publisher used to say, and I loved it when she said it, is this notion of like all the stories in grapevine and all the stories we collect in the back of the big book and the rest, like our story archive at grapevine is the oral history of AA. What did we sound like in 1954? You know, you can go in that archive and hear what we sounded like and how we shared in 1954 in your town. You know, like um, we are an oral tradition and, and, and the stuff that carries forward that we share with one another that works is the stuff that stays, right? The stuff that, does, that didn't work doesn't stay. It's not there anymore, right? Those things fall to the side. So it's, it's an, it was a nice reminder and it's a great reminder that none of those ideas are my own. Josh, thanks for being here today and talking yeah. to us. It's Josh, thank you. I'm pleasure. so glad to get you on here. This has been great. Totally my pleasure. I'm a huge fan. <laughs> we didn't pay him to say that. <laughs> what y'all do is great. <laughs> Look, the owl Watch out. pluming his feathers. He's so proud. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for joining us. The Boiled Owl podcast is posted on the 1st and 15th of every month. Visit us at boiledowlaa.org or email giveahoot at boiledowlaa.org. If you want to know more about AA, Google Alcoholics Anonymous and your city or visit aa.org. Please note Boiled Owl AA is produced by members of Alcoholics Anonymous and only expresses our experience and opinions. It is not endorsed by AA World Services.